can't see. Foreheads. Definitely, Father, thank you so much once again for this privilege, this honor of gathering together as family, Father, and the unity of a faith that you provided each one of us as individuals and corporately by grace. Father, thank you, especially for bringing back some of those in the flock that have been unable to be here due to illness, which so uh, encouraging to see them. We're so grateful to have their presence with us this morning. Father, we pray for those that still can't be with us, that they know that we're with them in spirit and we're praying for them. We pray also, Father, for those that are still lost, um, that you humble them. And if your will be done, that we might partake in evangelizing them even. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work, for all the work that he did to make a morning like this and to cancel out that debt, all that work he did willingly on a cross. Father, we just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and this is a wonderful, wonderful uh, ripoff from Holy Scripture, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Um, and that's such a wonderful way to start a Sunday morning to understand that with righteousness that is given to us, we receive also and enjoy experientially um, peaceful fruit. And who isn't after peace? If you really whittle down um, what most people are after, even unbelievers, they're after peace. People just want peace in their lives. It's just too chaotic. And as our previous lessons were, you know, why all the complexity and chaos? It's just life is just too chaotic. And everybody's looking and searching for peace and something that's going to settle their souls. And it really is in Christ alone that we're able to find these things and Jesus Christ being the very manifestation of righteousness and as believers we have it in, uh, imputed to us so that it takes care of that penalty and we have a certain amount of peace knowing that but his peace is also imparted to us as a function of imparted righteousness to be theological about it so in any case in order to grab hold of the angle in which the spirit desires for us to take uh, into this message series titled The Peaceful Fruit of Righteousness, we must understand how we got here. And so I'll reiterate some of the good work we did on Thursday evening. Um, we do this in part by situating ourselves with a big picture, godly viewpoint of our recent curriculum. And uh, you should look at this every so often. Where has the Spirit taken us? And when you see some of these titles, because they came up so many times in our lessons, uh, it forces us or it brings into remembrance uh, a lot of the topics that we uh, discussed in detail. And so uh, the last two months alone, uh, in April and May, we had what is repentance and who gets to define it. That had sort of gotten us going when we completed that. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? The power of deception. Are you ready? Uh, personal readiness in view, even responsibility in view. Uh, and then why all the complexity and chaos 
And that was before this week's series titled The Peaceful Fruit of Righteousness. And so it behooves us to think big picture and think about the nature and the, the way that the Spirit takes us along. Um, so with that said, let's quickly review what we covered on Thursday. Right out of the gate, the Spirit gave us this, 1 John 5.17, Part A. All unrighteousness is sin. Unrighteousness, not right. Anything that's not right is sin. And we got into talking about uh, how do we know the distinction between right and wrong, and God has given each of us a conscience. In the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, who's all-powerful, uses that device placed in us by God Himself to convict us between right and wrong. And so when we're able to distinguish such things, we're able to distinguish sin. Because that which is unright is sin. So we might break that statement down more practically as follows up here on the board. Whatever is not right is sin because it is wrong. Whatever is not right is sin because it is wrong. Whatever our good conscience convicts us of, we must obey the Spirit and do what's right. And so as we know theologically from the Bible, God the Holy Spirit convicts our conscience Whatever our conscience convicts us of, whatever we are uh, decided on, we must do what is right. Otherwise, James 4.17 is in play. The one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's accounted a sin. That's why we get unrighteousness is sin. So, I'm thinking about this, and as I'm preparing it, I mean, I just started, right? I'm on, like, just got into my second page of notes here. And already we have a balance statement up here on the board. Already a balance statement. There are times where you do not realize that you are offending God, missing the mark, sinning. There are going to be those times. We know what's right and wrong, but there are going to be times when we're missing the mark and we don't know it. And this is just a balance statement. So do not spend every moment worried about such things. Do not get stuck in what I always call analysis paralysis. Live. Live the way you uh, believe you should live. Live in a way that is right to you. Do the, quote, best you can with what you know to be right and wrong. And be encouraged. We're going to read Romans 8.26 in a moment. Not religious or legalistic. So this is just a balance statement. Uh, Anytime you start talking about a good conscience and right and wrong, uh, I think people can become hyper-analytical, overly analytical, and you get stuck in analysis. Oh, am I, am, I, am I offending God? Just do what you think is right. Okay? Don't even worry about it. There's going to be times where you find out later, oh, man, I did that wrong, or this was wrong, and you spend too much time living in the future or too much time living in the past, and you get in what I call analysis paralysis, where you're just stuck. You don't know what to do. Uh, learn how to live, too. So that's the balance statement. Don't get stuck just because of these principles. So there are times where you do not realize that you're offending God, missing the mark equals sin. So do not spend every moment worried about such things. I mean, if you know the right thing to do, then do it. That's obvious. But don't be super hyper-analytical to the point where you, you know, basically stay at home like a hermit because you're afraid to offend the holy God of the universe. Do the best you can with what you know to be right and wrong. 
be encouraged, not religious or legalistic. So I want to look at a particularly encouraging verse. Go to Romans 8.26. Romans 8.26. I find this whole passage that we're going to read particularly encouraging. Romans 8.26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. You see? Isn't that encouraging already? He helps us in our weakness. We're too weak to know everything that's offensive to God. We're too uh, human, so to speak. We're too fleshly still, or at least um, influenced by the power of sin to realize even when we're sinning sometimes. So in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit is so involved in our lives, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us Excuse me, with groanings too deep for words. And that's a very personal, encouraging thing to know about God, because that Spirit is God. And God knows everything about us. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. And so He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I just want to um, highlight that that's a very personal, uh, that's very personal attention that we're receiving from God Himself. Um, but I do want to continue with this passage since we've seen bits and pieces of it for different topics recently. Look at verse 27. And He, God, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who, can, or who is against us? He who, will, or he who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we have that sort of uh, connection even to previous lessons. All right, let's quickly recap what the Spirit's put on the table. Already we know this is quite a, let's call it a big picture message. The messages themselves have a lot of, I don't want to call it grandeur, but for lack of a better term, 
when we talk about the peaceful fruit of righteousness, you're talking about an entire sphere of our existence. Just being righteous, having righteousness imparted, imputed to us, that's a very big thing to consider. And in opposition to that, of course, is what is antagonistic to it, which is sin, which reads again in 1 John 5.17a, all unrighteousness is sin. And we saw this. Whatever is not right is sin because it is wrong. Whatever our good conscience convicts us of, we must obey the Spirit and do what's right, a la James 4.17. And then we got the balance statement. There are times where you do not realize that you are offending God, missing the mark of sin. So do not spend every moment worried about such things. Do the, quote, best you can with what you know to be right and wrong. Be encouraged as well. We just read that in Romans 8.26 because God himself, his spirit, intercedes for us. He understands us. He understands our weaknesses. He understands where we miss the mark, and so he intercedes for us. It's a uh, divine level of patience there and loving kindness and compassion that is in view always at a very personal level. You have to understand God's desires and that God really didn't have to do any of what he did, certainly not become a man and pay for our sins so that we might be reconciled to him. He didn't have to do any of that, but he did. Why? Because that's his will. His will is that all are saved and come to the knowledge of him. So says Holy Scripture. See how this comes together? And so it makes sense once you understand the essence of God, the love of God for you personally, that he would do these things for you, that he would even intercede for you because you're weak. So be encouraged, not religious or legalistic where you put yourself on a treadmill, so to speak. All right, I want to continue with our review from Thursday up here on the board. We had this unrighteousness equals sin. We just saw that equals discord. In other words, well, if, you're, if it's sin, then it's discord or lack of peace. Sinning and peace do not mix. And that's what uh, the Spirit's been starting this series off with. If we're going to study the peaceful fruit of righteousness, well, what about unrighteousness? Unrighteousness is antagonistic to that peace that we're all agreeably after. So what we've learned is that peace is the result of our Lord's promise to give it. He said, my peace I leave with you in John 14, 27. However, we've also learned that such promises are conditioned experientially on our obedience. And that's a big one because uh, the human flesh, the last thing it wants to do is obey anyone. The last thing any of our enemies want to do is obey God. But yet there stands the issue that peace, the premise of peace, is based on obedience. Because it's when you're obedient that you're right before God. That's what we call righteousness. And when you're righteous before God, that's when you have the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Psalm 112, 1, Proverbs 16, 7, John 13, 17, James 1, 25, 2 John 1, 6. All of these we went through on Thursday evening. I'll give you Psalm 112, 1 up here on the board. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. We're talking about obedience here. 
this person is blessed, the obedient person, the one who even delights in God's commands, is blessed. And peace, of course, is one of the preeminent blessings from God. So we might say, rightly, that obedience is key. And, of course, it is a function of humility. Because an arrogant person does not obey. An arrogant person usually plays a good game, depending on their maturity level, or how good they've become at being arrogant. But they don't obey, and they're not interested in obeying. And they might argue tooth and nail with you, but God sees the heart. And that's what's important, is a person willing to obey. We pondered a flower on Thursday evening that was planted in a bad area where roots and weeds wreaked havoc with its attempt to grow up and be beautiful. I mean, that's a flower really, if you're to personify it, that's what a flower really does. My contribution to the world is to look beautiful. Don't get all fronted if you're, you know, a plant monger and, oh, no, it's good to bees and, okay, settle down. You know what I'm saying. A flower really, if you personify a flower, it really wants to grow up and be beautiful to bring joy to those who see it or even smell it. Okay? The solution to that situation, that obviously fake situation, was to transplant the flower to an area of the yard more conducive to growth, more protected from the throes of what could only be called death to the flower. In other words, if, if it's dangerous over here for the flower, then move it. Take it out of the throes of what could possibly, you know, in, uh, uh, influence it through the power of what it would only call death and move it to some place where there's more life. This is analogous to sanctification for we believers. We are saved, but our lifestyles, I was thinking a lot about this. Our lifestyles, our thoughts, our perspectives are still wrapped up in a bad place. You see, some people can get saved in the, the, the oddest or craziest circumstances. But you know what? When you're saved, all the, the world doesn't go, oh, now you're saved. Okay, let's put you over here where everything's nice and rosy. No. You get saved and you're, and you're still in the same life you were in before. Lifestyles are like the locomotive analogy, right? There's a whole lot of momentum with our lives, especially the older you get. Especially the older you get. And so we get saved, but our lifestyles, even our thoughts, our perspectives, our habits, are still wrapped up in a bad place. In other words, up here on the board, fair expectations. While it's true that when we are saved, we are changed internally, we are new creatures in Christ, so says 2 Corinthians 5.17, all the external forces in our lives do not magically change as well. I didn't say internal, external. All the external forces, because all of a sudden you're made a new creature and you're to identify with the new self. But nothing else has changed. You're changed, but nothing on the outside has changed. I mean, you might get saved in a family. Maybe you're a teenager. You're the only one in the whole family that's saved. Maybe you're a spouse and you're the only one that's saved. Things don't magically change from the outside in. 
But we know this to be true, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Yeah, internally, spiritually. But life has momentum. So all of this poses obvious problems, or maybe obstacles is the better word here. Whatever the case may be, we can't just wax poetic speaking philosophically about how we've been changed and how I love Jesus and I've been changed and, you know, but we must approach this very practically. And that's the flower analogy. You know, you don't plant a, a, a rose bush in a, you know, in an area that's arid and dry and rocky and all these other things. Maybe you can, I don't know. But you know what I'm saying. You don't, you don't try to plant something beautiful in an area that's not conducive to growth. And maybe it gets started there, but God's trying to sanctify us away from such things. Deliver us. That's what it means. So remember, I was thinking about this as well. The term practical, we talk an awful lot about practicality from this pulpit. And that's a wonderful blessing. But the term practical shares the same root as practice. The term practical shares the same root as practice. And it makes me think about a recent blog I wrote titled Practice Makes Perfect. It's not about a legalistic approach to being a doer, as James might speak of, but rather practicing what is pleasing to our Lord. Practicing what is pleasing to our Lord. That's what it means to be practical. That's what it means even to be righteous. To practice what is pleasing to our Lord. So up here on the board, practical implies practice. Practical implies practice. This means, or this is what it means to think of these messages in a practical way. It means we are looking to practice that which is pleasing to our Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 5-9. We're looking to practice that which is pleasing to our Lord. Go to 2 Corinthians 5, 5. You can't say things like, you know, childish things like, well, I didn't mean to hit her, but I did. I've never bought that lie. Never. You know when you, know, you get these people that are dysfunctional? And they're like, and they always say, I didn't mean to do it. Yes, you did. But I didn't, I, I never mean to do it. It just happens. Oh, you're a victim of your own? Wait a minute. You want me to buy the lie that you're a victim of your own? What are we saying here? No, you wanted to do it. So stop acting like a victim. Ah, I mean, I just keep doing this stuff. I don't mean to. Yes, you do. It's why you do them. Is that fair? Why does everybody buy that lie, though? I didn't mean to. I don't know how it happened. Yeah, you do. You went, I, I don't know what happened. I didn't mean to. Yeah, you did. You went like this. Am, am I, am I, you guys missing what I'm saying? You guys are looking like, right. you, you mean what you mean. Yeah, I mean, we, you did something because you meant to do it. So stop acting like you're a victim. I didn't mean to do it. 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, 
And, and, and if you hit, let me put, let me just close, put a closure on that. If you hit somebody, is that right or wrong? That's wrong. Okay, what do you think God says then? It's not right, it's unrighteous to hit someone. You know, in certain, you know what I'm saying? In most circumstances. I'm not talking about disciplining a child or something like that. So it's wrong. Okay, God's that practical. It's, un, it's not pleasing to God for you to hit somebody and then, and then cop out and say, I didn't mean to. Yeah, you did. 2 Corinthians 5.5 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. To be pleasing to Him. So being pleasing to God doesn't just include what goes on in your head, but also what you do. Like I said, oh, but I didn't mean to. That was what was going on in my head. I just hit them. No. God's not pleased when you hit somebody. Because that's not good, is it? That's evil. That's not right, therefore it's wrong. There you go. Up here on the board again, practical implies practice. This is what it means to think of these messages in a practical way. It means we are looking to practice that which is pleasing to our Lord. So, if we're being asked by the Spirit to think practically, we might do well to begin with I put this up on the board on Thursday. These are just some things to think about in terms of practice. And the other P word that goes right along with this is priorities. You tend to build habits around your priorities. Is that fair? Okay, you tend to build habits around your priorities. If it wasn't a priority, it would never become a, a, a habit. That's why we train our kids. Hey, make your chores a priority so it becomes a habit so you don't forget and get punished. Make your chores a priority so they become a habit so that you don't get punished. Therefore, priorities, etc. Well, this is what we're talking about. What's your first priority when you think of money? Woohoo! I'm buying some new clothes or a new video game or, I don't know, I'm going to blow it on a $500 steak. Do those even exist? They do, actually. See, Sean's like, yep. I don't know how he knows that. Probably read it. Internal joke. What is your first priority when you think of money? What is your first priority when you engage with media? Are you trying to be godly? Are you trying to do what's right? How's God think about you engaging with media? But it's my habit. I just come home from work and I'm tired, so I flick on the TV and I just go, and I suck in the, the sewer pipe. Is God pleased with that? Is that pleasing to God? I don't think so. I mean, I would bet, unless you're watching, you know, reruns of the pulpit. What's your first priority when you build relationships? Are you looking to build relationships with the world? Because I don't know what the Bible says about being friends of the world. That makes you an enemy of God. How about what's your first priority when you have some free time? Or when you read your Bible, attend church, or pray? Are you or your flesh involved in any of these things? Yeah. Here's what the Bible tells us. We ought to live like Christ, not just talk like Him. Talk is cheap. 
ask James or consult the book of James. We have to live like Christ, not just talk like him. Talk is cheap. Don't just talk like Christ talked. Talk a big game. I didn't mean, I didn't, uh, yeah. We're supposed to live like him too. And that is pleasing to the Lord. So I was reflecting on this. Who here is willing to say that a good farmer never has to actually do farming? (laughs) Oh, he's the best farmer. She's the best farmer ever. She's never left her porch, or he's never left the porch. No, but you don't understand. Huh? They are a good farmer. All right, so who's going to actually say that a good farmer is someone who never actually has to do farming? Or that a good farmer never has to till the field, or milk the cows, or bale the hay, or pluck the weeds? To the contrary, a good farmer has his work cut out for him seven days a week, 365 days a year. Well, as we've learned in the past, the reason there are so many references to farming in the Bible is that it was written to agricultural societies that would have, this, these things would have resonated with. Jesus spoke using agricultural terms to drive many points home. For example, up here on the board, Luke 9.62. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And for the sake of clarity up here on the board, Jesus was not speaking about entrance into the kingdom, but rather service within it. If you're saved, your hands are already placed on the plow. Jesus said, great, I just saved you. Here's a plow. Plow a straight furrow in the soil. That's what I want you to do. I want you to just go straight. I'll be down the other end saying, come this way, come this way. Okay, go this way. And all your enemies are going to be distracting you. You know, you're looking around. So the point is that a farmer must actually do the work of a farmer in order to yield a good crop. You know, like the uh, peaceful fruit of righteousness? Okay, let me say it again. A farmer must actually do the work of a farmer in order to yield a good crop. Well, a good crop is peaceful fruit of righteousness. Is there not a right way to cut a furrow in soil? If you're holding the plow, and Jesus said, go this way. There's a right way, is there not? Okay. If you want a good crop, then you go this way. If you want to mess with the crop, you want to lose fruit, like peace, then go ahead, look left and right and upside down and flip over and exacerbate the ox or whatever, you know, whatever, however you'd like to paint that picture. But isn't it easiest to think, we talk a lot about simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, isn't a straight line the easiest line to draw? Well, some of you are like, not really, but you know what I'm saying. Isn't it the easiest one to conceptualize, right? Point A, point B, it's even the shortest distance, right? It's like the simplest. If you start doing this number, that's not a very simple thing. Try to get a mathematician to put a formula on that thing. Really easy. That's 
how simple it is. And that's what the Spirit's been saying to us. But you've got to actually do righteousness. This isn't rocket scientist, uh, science, folks. Um, stated another way, more practical way, is it fair to say that a farmer knows the right thing to do, therefore he must do it? That's fair. A farmer knows the right thing to do, therefore he is called to do it. If he doesn't do what's right, he is sinning against whoever owns the farm itself. If he doesn't do what's right, he is sinning against whoever owns the farm itself. That is exactly the way we ought to think about our lives. If we aren't practically doing what we know is right, then it is unright or unrighteous. Hence the following pivotal principle in our messages. Again, here it is. Unrighteousness equals sin equals discord or loss of peace. What we've learned is that peace is the result of our Lord's promise to give it. My peace I leave with you. However, we've also learned that such promises are conditioned experientially upon our obedience. Remember the title of this morning's message is The Peaceful Fruit of Righteousness. Up here on the board, in terms of encouraging fruit. Fruit is a practical device that God uses to prove to us that He is actually sanctifying us. Peace is a primary fruit of righteousness. I love this about God. He says, I'm going to give you promises. There are some conditions, but I'm going to give you some promises. If you live right, if you're pleasing, if you do this X, Y, and Z, I'm going to, you're going to bear fruit, good fruit. Peace is a primary fruit of righteousness. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, John 16.33, Isaiah 12.2, 12, 12, uh, 12, 26.3, 1 Peter 3.8-12, Romans 15.13, Hebrews 12.14, Psalm 4.8. I could keep going on and on and on. This is, this is a, uh, a primitive, a primitive in the Bible. An absolute primitive. So let's look at some encouraging scripture on this. Go to 2 Thessalonians 3.16. It's awesome because God proves His promises to be true. It's a device He uses to show that He's sanctifying us. I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but in your own soul right now, ask yourself, do you have more or less peace than you did 10 years ago? I hope most of you say more, much more, especially after the lessons. Right? Some of you in here listening to my voice just got saved in that time period. And so there's inherently more, just knowing that you're going to spend eternity with the Lord. That's all God's doing. That's what He says. He says, I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to give it abundantly to you as you grow up in this faith that I've also given you, being in Christ Jesus 2 Thessalonians 3.16, and this is how he proves to us that he's sanctifying us because we didn't have it the day before, but now we do, and we can't take credit for it like some do. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. 
That was Paul's hope. Go to John uh, 16.33. John 16.33. God wants us to have the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And it's the of righteousness part that really makes it conditional. Of righteousness. It's not the peaceful fruit of unrighteousness. It's the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Of what's right. In other words, there's a cause effect there. John 16, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. How about Isaiah 12, 2? Go to Isaiah 12, verse 2. Isaiah 12, verse 2. These are all very, very, very encouraging passages in Holy Scripture. Isaiah 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Is that not the most peaceful thing? Just think about peace. What is peace by definition? Well, there it is. God is my salvation. I have, oh, that's the most peaceful thing to say. I will trust and not be afraid. That is just about the most peaceful thing you could say to yourself if it's in truth. God is my salvation. God is my deliverer. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. How about Isaiah 26, verse 3? Isaiah 26, verse 3. You see a little bit more of the conditional statement in this verse. Isaiah 26, 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. The steadfast of mind. That might be the person who's resolute on cutting a straight furrow in the soil. The one whose hands are on the plow and is resolute on cutting a straight line and walking a straight line, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's a steadfast mind, a person who doesn't move, who doesn't veer left or right, who's only really intent on moving in the direction of Jesus Christ because that's what's pleasing to the landowner to the one who purchased our lives. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. How about 1 Peter 3, 8? 1 Peter 3, verse 8. I hope you see, this is the, and remember I was saying at the start of class, this is a, this is a big picture situation. This is, we talk about the righteous, uh, or the peaceful fruit of righteousness, we're talking about holistic issues. We're talking about God being a God of peace. 1 Peter 3.8 To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Sounds like Paul. For as long as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, right? Or with all men. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For... The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. 
He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. That's almost our lesson title right there, verse 11. Must turn away from evil. Unrighteousness equals sin equals lack of peace. Discord. He must turn away from that, from evil, and do good. You see how it's do. It's not just think it, do it. He must seek peace and pursue it. These are very practical lessons. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Go to Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Go to Hebrews 12, 14. Hebrews 12, 14. I hope you see the brand of encouragement the Spirit's giving you in Holy Scripture. I mean, nothing is more powerful or able to do it than that. My biggest job really is to encourage you to consult Holy Scripture any chance you get. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men. We just saw pursue peace. Now we're talking about spreading out to all men even. Well, you don't pursue peace with all men other than in a practical sense. Yes, thinking a certain way is the start of it. But there's also a practical interaction. I mean, we don't just, you know, mind vibe each other, right? It's like, you get my peace? No. (laughs) We show peace. We reveal peace. We reveal righteousness. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And then finally go to Psalm 4, 8. Psalm 4, verse 8. Psalm 4, verse 8. Okay, who doesn't, what's more irritating than not being able to get a good night's sleep? Ugh. It's the worst. And if you get like a string of them, like three days in a row, nobody wants to be around with you, right? And that is not pursuing peace with others. Because you're, you know chomping chomping at everybody because you got no sleep and you're cranky. Look at verse 8 of Psalm 4. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. A person in a, in a chaotic life, a dysfunctional life, one of the problems is they don't sleep because there's too much spinning on in that little head of theirs. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, Make me dwell in safety. You got everything under control, right? Yep. That's what peace looks like. I can sleep at night. A person who's not at peace does not sleep well. And that reminds me of um, 
you know, people, well, you don't understand my life. Well, Jesus went to sleep in the, in the bow of a boat that was about ready to capsize. And he slept like a baby. And he said, what's the problem? Faith? Yeah. What's going through your head right now? So don't blame your circumstances. Well, you don't understand, Baldy. How do you know what I've gone through in my life? You may have no idea what I've gone through in my life. And it doesn't matter. But we know what Jesus went through. And he had perfect peace. So what are you complaining about? It cannot be a function of circumstances, even. Up here on the board, again, that's very encouraging. Because there's deliverance in that. You mean no matter what I go through, I can have peace? Yes. You mean no matter what? Come on. You mean that... Ten years ago when I was miserable and dysfunctional and cranky and I had no peace whatsoever, if I had the Lord and I had the perspective I have today, then I would have gone through that in a much easier way. Maybe not perfect. There would have been cracks. But I would have been at least had some peace. Yes. That's the whole point. And that's what God wants for you. Steadfast of mind. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Being right before God. And that's why this pulpit is designed to say, hey, Listen, I'm not judging you. I really am not judging you. But this needs to go. That needs to go. That attitude you have towards this thing or this person, that definitely has to go. This grudge you're holding, this form of unforgiveness that you've been clinging on to since you were a kid, that needs to go like now. Those are all practical things. You need to go ask for forgiveness to that person who you wronged. Because until you do, until you admit that you were wrong in the first place, and then you seek peace with that person by, through apology, you're not going to have it. This is the thing, these are the things, these are the practical things that the Lord's saying to us. I mean, let's think about it. what are the reasons we don't do those things? Arrogance. I don't want to. I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. I've had people tell me they, they really, in circumstances, it was so blatantly obvious. And they say, I, I wasn't wrong in any way, shape, or form in that situation. That's impossible. Because you're imperfect. And somewhere along the line, you did something that was wrong. Dead wrong. In God's eyes. You're just too stupid or arrogant to realize it just yet. And so God in his patience says, well, I guess I'll have to have the bald guy keep talking about these things. So eventually the person says, oh yeah, I guess I was wrong. And I guess that's why I'm lacking certain peace in my life. Does anybody really want to be at odds with any other human being in this world ever? What's easier, to have peace with everyone to have 50-50 or to have no peace, just as three samples. I'm going to go with it's a lot easier and a lot easier to sleep at night to have 100% peace in your life with people. We know that's impossible because people are ridiculous, right? But is, will everybody agree that that practical reality is what everybody would like to have? You know what we call that? Heaven where there's, there's going to be perfect peace amongst all the brothers and sisters in Christ. We know we can't get there yet, but that is the direction that we're cutting. 
That's our pursuit. And that's very encouraging. Very encouraging. And that's why we read all that scripture. I hope you are as encouraged about God's desire to grant you peace as I am. It is irrefutable that this is his divine will. Just like it is irrefutable that he gives it to those who obey him. He gives it, it's irrefutable that that's his will. And it's irrefutable that he gives it to those who obey him. So if he says, pursue peace with all men and you disobey, what do you think is going to happen? If he says, forgive one another and you disobey, what do you think is going to happen? If it says, be at, all, be at peace with all men and for as long as it depends on you and you disobey, what do you think is going to happen? I can just keep going on and on. I mean, so let's get back to our launching pad again. Third time now. 1 John 5, 17, part A. All unrighteousness is sin. You might say all disobedience then is sin. Anything that robs you of your own peace is the result of sin. The second key principle, unrighteousness equals sin equals discord. What we've learned is that peace is the result of the Lord's promise to give it. However, We've also learned that such promises are conditioned experientially upon our obedience. And, of course, we are to live like Christ, not just talk like Him. Talk is cheap. And then finally, on the topic of practicality, we looked at this, Luke 9, 62. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. As the Spirit taught us on Thursday evening, living the spiritual life is very much like flying instruments as a pilot. It's very much like it. Very, very much like it. I mean, you can look out those little windows. I mean, heck, if you're in a jumbo jet, you're going about 550 miles an hour. There's not a whole lot to see other than giant clouds and blue skies, which is beautiful. But in terms of flying, you're better off looking at your instruments. So the spiritual life is very much like flying instruments. Up here on the board, flying by the seat of your pants is what most people seem to be doing in Christianity, which is, I would say, just about the most destructive thing you can do as a Christian. Fly by the seat of your pants. That's a no-no. Because it's all about feelings. Feelings. Right? Right? Feelings ought to be treated as results, not causes. Results, not causes. The cause for spiritual living is the inerrant truth in the Word of God. Those are your instruments. While we may experience feelings as a result, we ought never trust our feelings when they contradict Holy Scripture. I have actually had long, drawn-out conversations with people that debate and I say, but you're debating with the Word. This is not my opinion even. This is what the Word says. And it's not like they say, well, I, they show up with ten other passages and say, well, this is what refutes your opinion. They don't show up with any Scripture. They just say, this is what I feel about God. What? No. 
That's a person typically that's in a downward death spiral, they call it, right? Someone who's doing something completely messed up. They're flying by the seat of their pants because it feels right, but they're about ready to crash and burn. Long, I mean, people don't even show up with scripture anymore and they call themselves Christians. How do you show up to a debate without scripture? How do you show up to a debate about the holy God of the universe who revealed himself uniquely in a book? How do you show up without any holy scripture with just your feelings? How do you show up and expect the Lord to be pleased with that approach in of itself? It feels right. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't matter what you feel. What does the Word of God have to say? Feelings ought to be treated as results, not causes. The cause for spiritual living is the inerrant truth in the Word of God. While we may experience feelings as a result, we ought never trust our feelings when they contradict Holy Scripture. I would say the hardest thing that I've dealt with is emotionalism, even as a pastor. People come into the faith with all these emotional things that they think are going to stay, and all these emotional um, presuppositions about God or the Lord Jesus Christ, and they, and they protect them. They protect them as if they're actually part of divine truth. And they're not. And that's the hardest thing because they take those things with them. And every time the Spirit tries to sort of root it out, to ferret it out of their soul, they go, no! No! They put up all these emotional walls. And they, and they block it off. And they have all these little cancerous pockets in their life, in their soul, that they've surrounded with like brick walls. Because, and then they'll say, oh, it's too painful for me to accept the actual truth. Once the conversation gets out, it's too painful for me to accept the actual truth of the matter. So for years, I put walls around certain areas of my life. I was wrong. I am wrong. This is true. And it hurts for me to think that way, but it's true. This is true. That's true. This is true. And God says, okay, then I'll wait. I'll be patient. Because I know that if I knocked all those walls down at once, you'd probably flee from me. You would implode. And so I'm going to chip at them. And I'm going to get guys like Pastor Ed Collins to chip at them. And you're going to look at him and go, cut it the heck out, dude, before I punch you. And I'm going to go, too bad. Right? Nobody's taking a swing yet. I'm up for it. Do you know what I'm getting at, though? And chipping away, and I'm the whipping boy. You really have a problem with God, but you take it out on me or whoever. And whoever tells you the truth, you know, and they're chipping that away. And you're like, you're like, stop it, stop it, stop it. And eventually those walls come down. And once you, it's over and done with, you say, thank you, Lord. Because I was obviously still in bondage. And I was lacking peace. Because that thing in me was unrighteous. And it never bore the peaceful fruit of righteousness because it was unrighteous and it never will. And that's all the Lord's trying to do. So just about, I mean, I'd argue that just about every errant, quote, 
Christian I've ever met is enslaved by this very issue. This issue of feeling God. I'm sure most of you can relate to what I'm talking about. It usually comes in the form of, quote, well, you can believe what you want, but I feel like God is this way or that way. You can believe what you want, but I feel like God is this way. And you can't take that away from me. You're right, I can't. You can feel whatever you want. That's between you and the holy God of the universe. I'm just telling you what he says about your own peace. The problem with such statements is that there is hardly ever any actual biblical evidence to support their so-called feelings. That's what we call flying by the seat of our pants. We say, no, I'm going up and to the right. Even though the instruments are saying, no, you're going down and to the left. I don't care. This is how I feel. Well, good luck crashing. That's what we call, again, up here on the board, flying by the seat of your pants. We don't get to feel our way to understanding God. God has already revealed himself to us through Holy Scripture, through Jesus Christ, the Word. The world says, follow your gut. You know, you ever get that one? Oh, follow your gut. Gut. Now when it comes to spiritual matters, you have a good conscience, that's different. But this whole idea of how does it feel? No. The Bible says follow Jesus. And John 1.14 says that Jesus is the Word incarnate. This is how we follow Jesus. When our hands are on the plow, this is right with us. When we want direction, we go to the good book. So we don't get to feel our way to understanding God. And when I say gut, I'm referring to human viewpoint. Hopefully that's obvious. And when I say follow Jesus, I'm referring to the Word of God. This is our responsibility as farmers, so to speak, as individuals who stand behind a plow that Jesus himself put our hands to. We have a personal responsibility to this commission called life. The sad thing is that if we look behind us, we can attribute to the terribly or the, these terribly crooked furrows in the soil to times of emotional instability. It's when we let our feelings rule the day that when all is said and done, we turn around and we say, oh, look at that big arc I just cut. I just literally cut across three other people. You know, because there's rows, right? I just cut across three other people. They ain't so happy with me. Hey, dude, I'm cutting a good row here. And you're constantly doing this number, right? Everybody has somebody in their life, if it's not you, that is like the worst plow driver in the history of plow drivers. And they don't care. Growing their wrecking lives and ruining people and making misery, spreading misery as if it's its own seed. You don't want to be that person. Those people are the most miserable people on the planet. I look at this people that are stuck in dysfunction. You know the meal Myers in the world. Everybody pity me, because that's what's been working for the first fifty years of my life, or thirty, or twenty, or whatever. Heck, everybody pity me. The world will do it. Everybody pity me. And uh, I look at that person and I say. That's a miserable person. That is a horrifically miserable person. 
I think we've got to get out of our own heads and say, instead of how miserable they make us, how about how miserable they are? How miserable do you have to be to cut across 10 people's lives, cut deep furrows in their skin, in their souls? How miserable do you have to be to do that? That person deserves our prayer. That person needs our prayer. You know, like Jesus said, pray for your enemies. That's why I have this thing, so I can do that. It's my thinking pad. <laughs> I mean, how you know, all it takes is a little perspective, right? What do we get? We get mad. Oh, you made me miserable. And we look at their life and say, oh, my word, I'm glad I'm not that miserable. I'm not saying judging. I'm just saying a little perspective change. Next, you go from wanting to punch them out to praying for them. So we have personal responsibilities, and when we cut crooked furrows and we look back, obviously there are times of, for oftentimes, emotional instability where we let, we let it go. We stop our steadfastness. We lost sight of it. We're tired, right? As we used to say in pilot training up here on the board, never trust your feelings, but rather your instruments. Never! Because there's, there's inclement weather situations where you can look out the window, but it's literally like gray. It just looks like looking at this wall, except brighter. You can't see anything. But I feel like I'm doing this. Yeah, well, I think the, the you know, it feel like an airline pilot. I think the 400 people behind you would really want you to follow the instruments. They don't really care about your feelings right now because it's going to hurt if you crash this plane. So why don't we do what's right here and follow the instruments instead of flying by the seat of your pants? Never trust your feelings, but rather your instruments. I want to give you this visual. Hopefully you can see it. Can you actually see that? You probably can't, huh? Maybe. Can you see all the dials and stuff like that? Flight engineer stuff, co-pilot, pilot, left seat, the stuff above. I mean, there's just myriad systems. Um, most people, when they see this, would argue that there's a lot of available information to a pilot. Is that fair? I mean, there's a lot of information there. And it's moving. These are dials and lights and stuff. In fact, there's enough to fly a jumbo jet from New York to London, even take off and land on just instruments. Although you can't do the takeoff and landing part by regulation. But they've done it before. That's how good instruments are now. Take off and land. Fly the whole thing. You just sit there with your arms above your head. If that's true, then a pilot has everything he or she needs to fly an airplane by instruments alone. And as the analogy goes, we are able to, quote, pilot our lives the same way, not following what we feel, but rather what the Bible tells us to be true. In effect, the Bible becomes our instrument panel. This is our Bible. How's this going on? What's, how's this system going on? What's our attitude right now? What's our altimeter saying? What's this? What's electrical? What's hydraulic? What's fuel? How are we doing on fuel? The pump's working. How are we doing? On, you know what I'm saying? What's going on here? Instruments. The Bible becomes our instrument panel. 
And it says, do not fly by the seat of your pants. It's way too murky out there. A lot of times we don't even know what's in front of us. So reflect on this. Ask yourselves an honest question in 2020 hindsight, because I'd argue this is the only time we can see such things. In 2020 hindsight, and if you, and you choose the topic that you've since been delivered from. You choose. Choose something that you've been delivered from. And then look at it in 2020 hindsight. Before you accepted the truth, why did you drag your feet? Before you accepted the truth, why did you drag your feet? Consider such unpopular topics as dating, marriage, divorce, abortion, repentance, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way that he taught it even. Why did you drag your feet? Ask yourselves why it may have taken you a while to orient to the truth. You know the truth in the Bible. Not how you feel. What does the Bible say? Why did you drag it? Some of you, I'm thinking about right now, are still dragging your feet, are still in denial, still reject the unadulterated, perfect, holy word of God. Still. Why? Because you feel like it. Because this is objectionable to your feelings. Hmm. Why? It's because some of these topics, when first confronted with truth, didn't sit right in your soul, didn't feel right. How's that? Let me, let me just throw this out there for you while you're chewing on that stuff. And you hopefully each of you have your own little situation you're thinking about. So people reject truth because it doesn't feel right. How's that any different than an unbeliever who says, it doesn't feel right that a loving God could ever allow evil in this world. Therefore, I'm not going to believe in him. It doesn't feel right to me that a loving God would ordain cancer or child abuse or sexual abuse or whatever you, your you know, famous go-to thing is. I mean, that, I'm speaking to an unbeliever. That, how's that any different? It might be a smaller scale, less drastic scale, because it involves salvation itself per se, but it involves salvation or deliverance in your life. How's it any different when you supplant the truth with your feelings? The truth is that our feelings get us into a lot of trouble. Listen up. I, I'm not going to say this as a cot blanc because I know a lot of emotional men, but women tend to be a little bit more emotional. Think about what I'm saying. Your feelings, your emotions, and I know there's times of the month when hormonally... There's only one honest, all right, two honest women in here. The rest of you, I don't know what to tell you. Hormonally, your emotions tend to spike. That's just been my experience with you ladies, I'm just saying. <laughs> don't let your feelings, your emotions dictate what is right or wrong. It gets you in a lot of trouble. Men, I know emotional men, so please don't. That's probably why I was a little silent there. Guys like, should I laugh? Jim's like, oh, Pat, I don't, I don't even think he's funny. <laughs> nope. First day back in a while, he's like. 
Feelings get us into a lot of trouble. So with that thought, here we are again. I don't know what the deal. Maybe you guys are stubborn, but here we are. What is your first priority? Well, I feel like, I feel like God loves me so much that I don't even have to, you know what? I don't even have to give to the church because I feel like God loves me more than that person. So that person should give their money and I should keep mine because God loves me more. Wait a minute, what? Yeah. Even the baby thinks that's garbage. <laughs> Screaming. Go for it, David. Is it David today? Yeah. What is your first priority when you think of money? When you engage with media? When you build relationships? When you have some free time? When you read your Bible, attend church, pray? Well, I feel... Stop. What does the Bible say about those things? Given the title of this morning's message, we might conclude, and I've got to close up shop here. We're going to bring DJ up to do communion. The Spirit is trying to create a string of connective tissue between the love that flows forth from God Himself to the resultant, keyword resultant, peace we have in our souls. This is all to deliver you, my friends. This isn't about me, you know, stirring the pot or kicking the beehive or whatever you'd like to call it. It's not that at all. I'm just an instrument being used by God to try to make some connections in your soul. So it's irrefutable what he's trying to do in your life. And so that you're drawn to him the right way. That you're drawn to righteousness, not legalistically, but because you want to please the one who saved you the one who loves you, the one who's made promises, the one who's proven to you already in your life that he sanctifies you, and that is his will, that he wants to give you more and more peace, that he wants you to bear good fruit. Why? Because you benefit. And that's usually what people who love you want in your life. Right? That's what he's trying to do. Just some more perspective before I close the message. As unbelievers... We weren't yet reconciled to the source of all peace. Therefore, as the Bible describes it, we are to obey the Spirit's unction, if you would, to repent and believe. Something Paul describes as the obedience of faith. This obedience is what gives us peace because it is the obedience to the gospel that saves us, reconciles us to the holy God of the universe, Go quickly to Romans 16.25. Romans 16.25. A few more minutes. Hopefully you didn't have any tall coffees. Anybody? Billy, all right, all right. Billy's got one, but he's not drinking it. Melissa comes with opaque glasses, so I can't pick on it. Romans 16.25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. You see, even salvation is in a form of obedience. Repent and believe. I mean, that's his will. Do you understand? God gives commandments by His will. He wants you to be saved. Therefore, the commandment is to repent and believe. That's the obedience of faith. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ, 
to uh, be the glory forever. Amen. As we noted on Thursday, I'll go through these quickly. According to the commandment of the eternal God, this establishes God's will in salvation and sanctification. The gospel is the linchpin of all saving grace before and after salvation proper. The very existence of a believer is intrinsically bound to the gospel. Leading to obedience of faith, God's will, what the Spirit's saying here is this obedience that we're talking about that produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It starts at the gospel. It's, the gospel is the centerpiece because it's obedience of faith that starts the whole thing. Leading to obedience of faith up here on the board. God's will leads some, not everyone. He wants all to be saved, but there's a free will. God's will leads some to salvation as a direct result of being obedient to the gospel command to believe. A lot of people don't think about the gospel as a command, but it is. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, you'll be saved. Obedience is always the way of salvation, sanctification, and righteousness. And so now you see these things coming together. You want peace, you obey. And here's where we ended on Thursday, and I'll end this evening or this morning, excuse me. Peace from obedience. If we want peace, we must obey God's commands. Obedience implies very practical lifestyle choices, not just mental assent to obedience. Not just, I know, but I didn't mean to. God says, don't be hitting your neighbor. I know I didn't mean to, but I did it. <laughs> No, you're not cute. You don't get uh, brownie points by, you know, playing that little game that you were able to play, you know, when you were the teacher's pet, let's say. Obedience applies very practical lifestyle choices, not just mental assent to obedience. While we can't fake it till we make it, we can at least humble ourselves, learning humility through life itself. God gives faith, Romans 12, 3, that leads to obedience, that leads to peace. And that just really ties the whole thing together, that it's all by the grace of God that we can even have this morning's lesson. That, we're evil, that we even have the, the, the faculties to look at our own lives and, and, and make some of the decisions and the conclusions and be convicted about certain things and then be given faith. And therefore have the ability to know the difference between right and wrong and do what's righteous. And then as our lesson title states, we have the peaceful fruit of that thing that God produces in us. All a result of one thing. What's the key to the spiritual life? Humility. Amen? All right, let's get some music started. We'll go uh, get ready for communion service. DJ is going to come up and lead us in service.
Good morning. How are you guys doing? Spirit has brought me up today, uh, I think, to look at this ritual that we're about to take part in as another piece of the puzzle of peace. I read Acts 2 this morning in preparing for this, and Acts 2.42 stood out. That scripture states, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And part of that hit me as those four things that we do, listen to the word of God from the pulpit, fellowship with each other, take part of the communion service, and pray continuously without ceasing, those are all parts of the puzzle for our peace. And especially from the pulpit this morning, we got a tremendous amount of information on who gets in the way of taking away our peace. It's always ourselves. So with the thoughts of today's service, with the thought of peace in your life being brought to you by what our Lord and Savior did 2,000 years ago on the cross, Let's partake of the communion service and think about that from a perspective of peace. In 1 Corinthians 11.23, it states, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you today, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let us eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let us drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads and pray. <clears throat> Father, what a privilege to be able to come before your throne of grace and celebrate the Lord's Supper in remembrance of your son's sacrifice on the cross 2,000 years ago. Thank you for giving your son's life for us on the cross and paying the enormous price for our sins so that I may be forgiven of all and share in your son's abundance life. May we never forget the enormous price that was paid on our behalf. May we never forget that we have been bought with the price. The price was the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we live for him and others, knowing that your body was broken and your blood was spilt for us. Lord, let us remember as we leave here today to bring the gospel with us out to the dark places that we come across in life and give the truth that you have supplied and let the Holy Spirit accomplish his work that needs to be done. Thank you, Father, 
for all that you give us, your grace, mercy, and your love. We pray all of this in your son's precious name and through the power of your spirit we do pray. Amen. You are dismissed.